0: Okay, why don't we uh, go ahead and get started. I'll just introduce myself. My name is Brian Vickers, and I teach uh, uh, New Testament and Bible interpretation here in town at Southern Seminary. And uh, last year when I was asked to come speak here, I said, well, I am a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. Um, Though all the time, I have to admit, all the time at home, anytime I get sick and my wife says, you need to go see the doctor, I'm always (laughs) doctor. And so I don't go to the doctor, and then I always wish I had gone. So, um, it, it actually, uh, to be honest with you, it took, me a, uh, it took me a while to figure out exactly what I was going to do, um, because I, I do teach, I, I teach Bible, and I go on uh, mission trips every year, uh, once or twice a year, and, but then I decided, you know, if I'm going to come, I'm just going to, I'm going to just simply do what I, what I do, and uh, I, I won't really speak too much to medical missions specifically. Um, there's plenty of experts here talking about that. And there's one of the Bible sessions where a guy talks about, I can't remember his name, he talks about the foundations for medical missions. And so uh, I thought, well, I'll just stick to what I do all the time, probably safer anyway. And we'll just generally do the, uh, the Bible and missions. And so I, it goes without saying, I hope, that if we were asked, where do we get our idea for missions? We'd all say the Bible. I hope we'd say that. Now, but what if we were answered a, asked a follow-up question that is, well, where in the Bible? Where in the Bible do you get your justification for doing missions, right? And, and my guess is, is that we would all have a text or, or something we would quote, maybe one or two texts, or maybe maybe the whole book of Acts we'd point people to. Uh, but my, my, my guess is if, if we had to land on one text that we would, most of us would probably go to to prove to prove that there's a biblical foundation for missions, I think we would probably, most of us, go to the Great Commission. Right? No surprise that I'm starting here, I suppose. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commission, of course, is usually thought to be sort of the one missions text in in the whole Bible. Uh, But really, really this text is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to missions in the Bible. In fact, it's the tip of a a gigantic iceberg, and that that iceberg is actually, in fact, the whole Bible, not just sort of texts sort of scattered here and there. Uh, And so, you know, missions in the Bible and talking about missions from the Bible or supporting missions from the Bible, building a foundation for missions, all these things is really about much more than just kind of amassing a bunch of texts so that we have a list of texts that we can go to, sort of list them out and say, well, here's all the texts that support me going into missions. Now, it's important that we be able to do that. Don't get me wrong. It's important that we be able to have a list of texts, Right. And more than one person has gone out into the world to do missions on the basis of having read and heard a text, and in that text, heard their call to go to the nations, right? Or to go across the street to their neighbor, right? Today, I'm really going to, when I say missions today, I'm really not just talking about international missions, but sort of missions in terms of it being a whole Christian life. Uh, But uh, again, again, we have to be careful, though. We have to be careful that we don't just rely on a a list of texts. As uh, Christopher Wright says in his really, really good book, The Mission of God, we can sometimes do this. We have already decided what we want to prove, and our collection of texts simply ratifies our preconception. The Bible is turned into a mind from which we extract, extract gems, that is, missionary texts. Now, Christopher Wright, I have the book up here. everybody's interested in it. it's an excellent book. It's a, it's a, it's a book all about the uh, mostly about the Old Testament. Christopher Wright, of course, does not deny the importance of carefully studying the Bible. His whole book is about carefully studying the Bible in order to build a case uh, for missions. So it's far from that. But what he is warning against is a tendency, I think we all have, to start with an idea, in this case missions, you can fill in really anything, but to start with an idea, in this case missions, and then take that idea to the Bible for proof that the idea is in fact biblical. Now it's not really that difficult to do with missions, but still, but still, what he's saying is we need to start in the right place, not start out here with sort of this assumption and then move to the Bible, because any time we do that we'll pretty much find whatever it is we want to find. Um. And so, if we want to engage and destroy sort of missions in a general way, yeah, we go to the Bible. We find we can find all kinds of texts. But but what if you're interested in medical missions? What's your what's your text? Is it the Great Commission? Well, yeah, in general. But or what if you're engaged in some kind of uh, relief type missions? What's your what's your text? I mean I mean what do you go to? I mean sometimes. Uh, sometimes, what we'll do, since we can't find specific texts, because in our day, missions is, a, missions is a really broad term. It's an engagement in, in sort of many, many fields, many people bringing many different gifts and abilities to the table and going out. It's what this conference is all about in, in many ways. Right? But uh, sometimes we can't find specific texts for these sorts of examples, and we'll typically allude to the fact well, Jesus, help, Jesus healed people, Jesus helped people. I'll heal people and I'll help people. And these are my sort of missionary texts. And again, again, there's, I'm, I'm not saying that there's something necessarily wrong about that. Um, but what if we want to go even further and include, say, in our missionary engagement, um, going in and helping after a tsunami or after an earthquake? What are, what are our specific biblical reasons for doing that? I mean, and there can be many, but it's easy to prove missions in a general sense uh, but not sometimes as easy to prove it if we're, only, if we're only determined to kind of list a bunch of texts. And I think more than one person has wrestled, depending on their gifts and abilities and how they feel like uh, God is calling them to the nations, uh, has wrestled with well, sort of their foundation for doing it. Even worse than just sort of proof texting, and that's what I've been talking about. You just have a bunch of texts and you sort of prove what you want to set out to do. Even worse than proof texting a foundation for missions is to pay little or no attention to anything specific in the Bible. Right? I'm not, I'm not accusing anybody here, of course, of doing that. Um, but sometimes we can just move out on the assumption that uh, Christians are generally called to serve everyone and generally called to love their neighbor. And there are, of course, always some people who say, well, you know what, we don't really have time to get bogged down in Bible or, even worse, theology, because once we do that, we'll never do anything. And, of course, there are lots of examples of people getting really bogged down and never doing anything. But we can't let sort of an extreme keep us from doing what we, what we really need to do. Uh, the practical ignoring of the Bible is probably the most dangerous choice of all. In fact, not even probably, it is. It's the most dangerous choice of all. It can often lead to work that is, that is good. Right? I won't deny that. Or even humanitarian, I won't deny that either but has really no distinguishing mark of being Christian. And then, therefore, no real distinguishing mark of being anything that I think I would call, or we would call, missions. And and don't get me wrong. I rejoice when I see people doing um, relief work or any kind of humanitarian aid, regardless of their motivations or affiliations or anything like that. I rejoice when I see that. I genuinely do. Uh, But when we attach the word mission, or missions, or missionary to it, um, I think that it needs to be more than just a general outreach to help people. Right? And again, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying let's stop helping people unless we're yelling the gospel at them or something like that. I'm not saying that. It's just, uh, what's the motivation for what we do? What are, what are we all about? I think that we have to have an awareness that we're doing something essentially Christian and consciously done for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and making him and his kingdom known if we're going to attach missions to what we're doing. So I believe when we come to the Bible simply looking for enough text to speed us on our way, we're missing out on the fact that missions is not a subcategory of the Bible. Missions is not just one of the millions of topics in the Bible among, among many. And if we practically ignore the the Bible, I think we're missing out on what should be informing everything that we do. And giving shape not just to missions, but our whole entire lives. Now it might sound trendy, trendy, that's not even a word. It might sound trendy, there we go, technical word. It might sound trendy to say this, but missions in the Bible is really a story. A story. And it is this, because God's Revelation himself in the Bible is all about his mission and his story. It's the story, here it goes, this is a really difficult thing. This is the Bible in a sentence. So I I, I want to challenge you sometime today to sit down and try to write the Bible in a sentence. It's a really bad sentence, and it's one of those things that you write it, and as soon as you look at it, you think, that's not really it. But this is as close as I could get with the time I had. So this is the big story of the Bible. God created the world and created human beings who rebelled against him, attempting to become the one thing they could never be, that is, creators rather than creatures, right? Because they said, you can be just like God. They said, okay, I'm in, I'm in. And then he set about carrying out his eternal plan to redeem them through his son, Jesus Christ, and through him to create a people who would believe, obey, and worship the only true God and make his good news of life in Christ known to a world in rebellion And finally, to establish fully his kingdom in a new heaven and new earth with Christ the King reigning forever. So that's a summary. For better or worse, that's the summary of the Bible. Though I want to encourage you not to replace this with your daily Bible reading. And this is one of those things. Even last night, I was sort of tossing and turning thinking, no, I need to change that. And finally, I said, you know what? It's a sentence. And I'm just going to let it go. And if anybody has a problem with it, I can try to answer their questions. So... That's it. That's, the, that, that, it. that's the story that's contained in the Bible. And the really audacious Christian claim is is that's the story that contains every story. Right? And that's the, that's the audacious claim of, of the Christian faith. That's the audacious claim of the Bible, is that there really is one big story. Not just one big Bible story, but the claim of the Bible is there's one story. And that story comprehends and contains every individual, cultural, societal, national, whatever story that exists. It's the story. And it's vitally important that we claim that story for ourselves, not just as a story out there, but as God's story and therefore our story. One that we're actually taking part in, not just sort of standing back as, um, you know, just standing back objective observers. Uh, Richard Bauckham. In his great little book, Bible and Mission, and my title is Bible and Missions, I put an S on it so I wouldn't plagiarize Bauckham. This is a great little book, and it's, it's really short, and I have it here if you're interested, and in I really recommend it. We all instinctively understand the world by telling stories about it. If the Bible offers a meta-narrative, that is just a big, gigantic story that encompasses everything. A story of all stories then we should be able to place our own stories within that grand narrative and find our perception and experience of the world transformed by that connection. So, as as Bauckham says, the Bible is the story of all stories. In other words, it's the story that tells the story of all people. And again, that is a really audacious claim. And it's a claim that most people hear and think, that's the most arrogant thing I've ever heard in my life. But we have to make that claim. Because the Bible doesn't claim to be anything less than that. The Bible doesn't claim to be one story among many stories, but it claims to be the story. Um, and the beauty of the Bible is its comprehensive view of everything. Now, increasingly, increasingly in our day, we have a tendency to talk of Western readings, Eastern readings, developed world readings, uh, developing world readings. But we need to be clear. This story is not essentially a Western reading or an Eastern story, or a Northern or Southern Hemisphere story, or a North or South American story, or a European or African or Asian story. It's the story that encompasses and contains and comprehends all those stories. All those stories, wherever it is we place ourselves on that sort of cultural map. right? It's the story of the one God and the world he created, and the display of his glory in Christ, and the salvation of his people, and his people are those gathered from every people, group, culture, society, language, race, and social status in the world all times. That's the story of the Bible. So to put it another way, missions, rather than being a subcategory of the Bible, is part and parcel of the big picture of the Bible from the beginning to the end. And it's not just a story, again, like that we view from a distance. Now, of course, the, the, the biblical story is, is objective. It doesn't, the biblical story doesn't rely on us to validate it to make it true. It presents itself as being true, and then confronts us. We're confronted when we come to the story of the Bible. We're confronted with not saying we're not we're not confronted with validating it. We're confronted with believing or disbelieving. That's how that's how the Bible presents itself. You have two options: you either believe the Bible, you don't believe the Bible. You either follow Christ, you don't follow Christ. And that's how that's how the Bible presents itself. Um, in many ways, what I'm doing today. Um, If I can do it in 45 minutes, Uh, what I'm doing today is talking about the whole big picture of the Bible as the picture of missions, as the picture of missions, uh, the story of all stories. Now, typically, when I talk about the big picture of the Bible, I begin in Genesis 1 through 3, and I spend a lot of time there, like hours and hours and hours uh, when 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 I teach in the big picture of the Bible. So I'm going to have to give you my abbreviated version of Genesis 1 through 11, and believe it or not, we're going to end up in Revelation, for this is all over with. So we're going to do the whole Bible today. That's what you're in for. And I'd like to say I'm not going to bombard you with text, but what my students would tell you, that means I am really going to bombard you with text. But they'll all be up here, and you can read them as you want to. So God created one man, Adam. And he gave him everything he needed, everything he needed. He lacked nothing for life and happiness. He gave him a body, gave him breath, gave him a home, food, and finally his wife, his helper. And he gave Eve to Adam and Adam to Eve. But they were tempted. How were they tempted? Well, the the big temptation was you can be like God. So they're tempted to be the one thing they could never, ever, ever, ever be. They're tempted to be a creator rather than creatures. So really, it really is. It really does come down to they had everything. And there's one thing denied to them, and they said, that's what I want. That's what I want. And as a result... As a result, they're thrown out of Eden, and all their children, and their children's children, and their children's children and so children children, not ends, and so on, were born outside the Garden of God under a curse. Now, in the midst of that, in Genesis 3:15, there's a promise about something that's going to happen of the seed of the woman. Right? God doesn't wipe humanity out. He says, in the day you eat it, you will surely die. But then after they eat it, there's a curse on Adam, there's a curse on Eve, there's a curse on the world, they're thrown outside the garden. All kinds of bad things are happening, but there's still yet a promise, a glimmer of hope that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. But the history of the world doesn't doesn't, uh, doesn't get better at that point. In fact, it gets much worse. The history of the world is a downward spiral from that point on, with very few bright spots. It's a downward spiral until you get to Noah. And eight people are saved. Eight people are saved in the ark. And then they come out of the ark, and then you hear things like, be fruitful and multiply again. But then what happens? The story doesn't pick up. The story goes back down. It doesn't go, it's not all of a sudden better. It's sort of, if you're reading it for the first time, you think, oh, here we go. But no, it doesn't, it's not here we go. It's here we go again. And it slides back down. And so it spirals, spirals, spirals until, until, you come to the sort of explicit beginning of the story of missions in Genesis 12. But before you get to Genesis 12, something really dramatic happens that makes Genesis 12 necessary. Something really dramatic happens that makes the word nations necessary. Anybody know what that is? The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. That's where we get the nations. That's where we get the nations. And so it's really, really interesting because in Genesis 11 you have the Tower of Babel, but you know what you have in Genesis 10 right before that? You have this sort of genealogy of the world called the table of the nations. It's kind of like as as, uh, uh, Stephen Dempster in his his wonderful, wonderful book, uh, Dominion and Dynasty. It's a a story of the Old Testament. As he says, it's it's kind of of a, a, a genealogy, a map. Of the ancient world and their ancestors and their ancestors and their ancestors. It's not comprehensive of everybody, but that's what it is. So you, in, in Genesis 10, you have this table of the nations. It's kind of strange. You've been reading, it? you read all the way through, and all of a sudden you have the table of the nations, but there are no nations. So what you have in the Bible, you have this story. You have this. Um, it sets out here are the nations, and then the very next story is here's how we got the nations. Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. And you know the story, right? The story of the Tower of Babel is really In the context of Genesis, one gigantic act of rebellion. It's a big communal act of rebellion. Everybody gets together and rebels together. That's what they say. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And so they go, and you know the story, they they build this big tower of bricks, right? And it says they don't use stone and mortar, they use bricks. Now, I'm sure the first Israelites hearing about this story, who were brickmakers in Egypt, think, yeah, I know all about bricks, Right, so the thing that's on there, the thing they have to do, they're building bricks, using bricks in, in Egypt. They have to make bricks. All of a sudden, they hear the story. They built this big tower made of bricks, and of course, you know what happens. God comes and says, "No way, this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen." They all speak the same language. They're all gathered together. They're trying to make a big name for themselves. So God says, "Let's do this. Let's do what? Let's give them all different languages, because this will." That this will ruin their plan more than anything else. Breaking the tower is not going to help. Just sort of moving them around is not going to help. We'll do the one thing that will stop this whole process. We'll make it impossible for human beings to, create, to communicate. That's the story of Babel. Right? That's where the nations come from. That's where the nations come from. And we're all, under that, we're all under the curse of Babel all the time. I tell my Greek students, every time they complain about learning Greek, I say, well, you shouldn't have built that tower. And then you wouldn't be in trouble today. You'd be loving it because we, we wouldn't even have to have Greek. We all have the same language, right? But it, on a more serious note, on a more serious note, of course, uh, all the problems we face in the ancient world, Middle World, whatever you call it, modern world of nations fighting nations and cultures and cultures and uh, uh, arguments and 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 wars among you know, sort of similar digra- uh, dialects, similar people. It all goes back to that. Because once you separate people by language, they begin to separate by culture and identity and all kinds of other stuff. And people start to say, hey, this is my stuff. Well, I want your stuff. No, I want your stuff. I want their stuff. And people start, and it, it takes off. Things, go, things get worse. Things get worse. So the rift between God and man at Genesis, uh, in the first few chapters, it's expanding. And now the rift between people is getting even bigger. Right? It's huge when they're thrown out of the garden, because Adam and Eve, they're going to still be married, but there's going to be issues, right? and we don't have to even go into those. But what happens, at, what happens at, uh, at Babel is the rift between man and man, woman and woman, man and woman, is even bigger, if possible, than it was. And that's where we're left. And that sets the scene for the beginning of missions. Because then what happens? What happens next is this really interesting genealogy. Now, genealogies sometimes seem boring. But if you're doing a daily Bible reading plan, you come to a genealogy and you think, I'm going to get this done pretty quick today. And so you're done in no time. But the genealogies are packed with information. And the genealogy in chapter 11 of Genesis is one of the most interesting genealogies of all. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Genesis 11.30, memorize this verse. Now Sarah was barren. She had no children. What's the genealogy do? You can answer. I know we're on tape, but somebody can answer if you want to. Yeah, it tracks generations. It attracts generations, right? That's the whole point of a generation. This person begat this, and begat him, begat her, begat him, begat him, begat him, begat him, etc., on and on and on and on. The genealogy of Terah crashes to a close as soon as it begins. That's it stops. What? It's not going to go any further. Abram's wife can't have children. It's, it's, a, it's sort of a hopeless situation. But it's on the basis of this genealogy that missions explodes the promise of missions is given. Because what happens? In Genesis 12, in Genesis 12, God, this one man, Abraham, Abram, at that point, is singled out. He's singled out. And God comes and speaks to him. And says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land. I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I'll make your name great. And you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I'll curse and All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a really radical event. I mean, think about it. Think about it. I mean, here's this guy, his wife. He can't have children. He's just, who is Abram? Is he anybody special? No. He's just an idol worshiper over in modern-day Iraq. That's Abram's claim to fame. That's what he did. Like everybody else over there, he was worshiping idols. God singles him out for a blessing to become a great nation and bless everybody on earth through him. Now, there's a snag in this. What's the snag? And if you've read up to this point, you're thinking, hmm, you got to have kids for this to be true. right? And now, of course, if you start in chapter 12, you're eventually going to find out that Sarah can't have children. But, if you've read just a little bit before this in chapter 11, you think, what's happening here? This is the very people who can't have children. He's going to be a great nation and Everybody's going to be blessed through him. So the scene is set for God to work. That's what's happening. It's a hopeless situation. Abram can't fix it. Sarah can't fix it. Uh, We've had sort of a downward spiral in the history of the world. The scene is set for God to do something great. And that's exactly what he does. And if you want evidence that he kept his promise, just look around you all day today. And you'll see evidence of it gathered here today at at the missions conference. So, God reiterates his plan a little while later in Genesis 15. I won't read the whole thing. Abram's nervous, and he's figuring out a way to make this promise. He's going to fulfill the promise himself. And and God says, Don't be afraid. And Abraham says, What can you give me since I remain childless? And Eliezer of Damascus, he's going to inherit all my stuff. And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And God says, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up the heavens and count the stars, if you can count them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. Now this it's been a long, long, it's been a long, long years since Abraham got that first promise. And so God comes back and says, You won't even be able to count your children. That's how many children you're going to have. That's how big your family's going to be. And again, remember, this is the guy with the wife who can't have children, and he is passing his sell-by date. Abram himself, That's what Paul says in Romans four, right? Abram, not just is Sarah barren, but a- you know, Abram, he, he's, he's, he's he, honestly, he's just passed it, right? It's not going to work for him either. That's really kind of what happens, right? Sarah's barren, but then Paul tells us in Romans chapter four that Abram's body's dead too. So that's where we are. That's where we are. And of course coming up soon chapter 17 a son is born and then jacob is born and then jacob has 12 sons and then jacob has a jacob has 12 sons in their family is sort of of 70 and then everybody else involved they end up where in the nations in egypt that's where they are as slaves as slaves it's sort of a weird story right here's the great nation the as soon as they kind of build it up they're slaves in Egypt. And then God says to Moses, He comes, God comes and appears to Moses and says, right, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I'm the God of, God of your fathers. And then God says, I've heard my people. I'm going to go down and get them. And so God brings them out of the nations, right? The nations being Egypt. God brings that nation out of Egypt. And... He has a plan for them. that is to set them to set them in their own land. Now we all know, we all know the story from Egypt to Israel is not a good story. Um, Israel basically shows everything that goes wrong in the land. They prove it from the point they get to the Red Sea onwards. Because as soon as they get to the Red Sea, they start complaining about, "I wish we had those onions. Those onions were pretty good. This sea looks pretty bad. I wish we could go back." And then they start committing idolatry and they start rebelling. All kinds of other things. Things, things don't look so good. But God remains faithful, and God brings them to their land. God brings them to their land before they've even crossed. Before they've even crossed the Jordan, though, it's really clear this is not a stopping point. Things are not going to stop with this with these people. This is not the end of God's plan. Really clear. They start rebelling immediately. But God remains faithful to them, and there's a faithful remnant among them. But before they, enter, before they enter, we're told something really interesting in the book of Numbers, the first two chapters. It's easy to skip over this or skim over this, but basically what you have is a really clear breakdown of all the tribes of Israel as they're moving around the desert, around the tabernacle. And the interesting thing about it is how it ends up. Because what you have, you have one man, Abram, right, to Isaac, to Jacob, to his 12 sons, to 70 who get into to Egypt. Numbers 1 and 2 records over 600,000 people as members of this nation. They've already become a great nation. And they're still not even in their land yet. They're still wandering around the desert. So, they're established in their land, in the land God promised them. And what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to be a signpost, if you will, pointing people to the true God. That's what their business is. They're a nation among the nations. They're a special nation, a holy priesthood, a people for God's own possession, One and one. But did Israel have a mission or missions in the way we talk about missions? That is a big debated issue. In my opinion, no, they did not. I just said it really strong, but I don't want to beat around the bush. They did not, in my view, have missions the way we have missions. They didn't have a mission out the way we have. Now, some people think they did, but I really don't think so. I really don't think they did. Now, there are hints in that direction because there's all kinds of provisions about what you do for foreigners who live in the the land. But these are foreigners who have come and joined up. People didn't go out and bring them back in. And then there are also hints found, yes again, yet again, in genealogies and in other lists. You have Tamar, the Canaanite woman involved in that really weird and bad incident with Judah, one of Jacob's sons, and she's a Canaanite. Then you have Ruth, the Moabite, right, who turns out to be the grandmother of who? Anybody know? Yeah, yeah, Jesse, and then David, David, exactly, exactly. So these are both in line, Tamar and Ruth both appear in the line that goes from Abraham to Judah to David to Jesus, now, besides being important people in this just that sort of uh, genealogical line, they're also pointers because the line that's moving towards Christ already is in that in that line is already represented the nations. There are Gentiles in that essentially overwhelmingly Jewish genealogy. There are Gentiles included in it already, pointing forward I think to something that's to come. And of course, there are other people. There's Naam and the Syrian, right, who Elisha goes, tells and goes to bathe himself to get rid of his leprosy. There's the Shunammite woman that Elijah uh, tells her she's going to have a son, even though his, her husband's too old. There's Uriah the Hittite, right, the, the, the tragic, the tragic uh, husband of Bathsheba, that David sends out to the front lines to try to cover his tracks after his sin with Bathsheba. And there are others we could name. But there's a real, I think there's a good reason why we can name these prominent Gentiles in the Old Testament, because there just simply aren't that many. There just simply aren't that many. And none of these people are part of the story because people went out, sort of shared the law with them, and then brought them back. That's not, that's not the role they play is not that, that's not, where they, that's not why they play these roles. But there are these prominent Gentiles. There are these prominent Gentiles. So there's a sense in which we could say Israel had a mission but I don't think we can speak of missions, so to speak. And here's their. Yeah, 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 yeah. I should, have, I could have. I should have put Rahab in there too. That's a great. I, that's, that'd be a great addition. And she stands out. She stands out. So here's the mission of Israel. See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them and land your entry and take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear. They'll hear about what you're doing in, at home and these decrees and say, Surely this, nation, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nations is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us wherever we, whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? So their mission is kind of a home mission. They are the nation among the nations. They're the light among the nations. They're surrounded by idolatrous nations. Nations worshipping all kinds of idols. Israel's meant to be a light for their covenant God in their land. In their their land. Whoops. Uh Uh-oh. Big problem here. This is a really big problem. Actually, this is a really big problem. It's not the computer. It's the human being standing here. My, all my students somehow are laughing right now because they know that this is happening. Okay. So this is the one we just looked at, right? So this is, this is their mission. Now we know, we know that Israel failed in this mission in general, by and large. And we know that from the Bible. Ezekiel says... But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. But for the sake of my name, God's already made it. God's put his name on the line by making a promise. Right? God has promised Abram this is what I'm going to do. God's name is on the line. But for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profaned. That is my name in the eyes of the nations. Among the uh, nations they lived among and in whose sight I've revealed myself to the Israelites by bringing them out of Egypt. Same thing here. I don't have to read the whole thing. But in the Old Testament, generally the nations play a negative role. The nations, there's Egypt who has them in slavery. There's the Canaanites who worship idols and give them untold problems forever. And then, then there's the nations that they're sent to as a punishment. That's why Israel was sent to the nations, as a punishment for their sins, not to go out as missionaries. And then Ezekiel says, then when they were sent out there in punishment, they kept up their same old practices. And so, that's why they go to the nations. Now, of course, the whole time, there is a righteous remnant of people who are faithful to God. And God, of course, God, of course, is pushing the story forward. He's pushing the story forwards. Now, there are texts, and some of you may be thinking about texts in the Old Testament that do talk about the nations, and speaking to the nations, and going out to the nations, and to the nations flooding in to worship the true God. Let's look at them. There's just four I have. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O oh Lord. They will bring glory to your name. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known uh, among the nations what he's done, and proclaim what, that his name is exalted. I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece and to the distant islands that uh, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. And finally, one day is coming for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What's the one common thing about all these texts? They're all in the future. Every single one of them is in the future. They're all connected to a promise. They're not connected to something that's happening at that moment. They're looking towards a promise, a day of fulfillment, right? And it's, I just think I think it's I think it's really clear in these texts that this idea of missions, as we speak of it, is something to come. And the reason I think it's to come is because because in the Old Testament we're waiting for fulfillment. We have promise, and we're waiting for the fulfillment of it. And part and parcel of that fulfillment is going to be a message to proclaim. Good news, as Isaiah says in chapter 55, how lovely on the mountain the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims in Zion, your God reigns. That's the gospel. It's in the future. It's in the prophets, as the prophets prophesy, a great time when God's going to act in the future and make everything right and set everything right. And he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to pour my spirit out in you. I'm going to cleanse you and make you clean. Um... All these things are looking forward to a great time when God's going to act in the future, in the future. So what we have to this point is the Bible works sort of like this. You have one man, then the nations, then singular man, then a great nation, then finally back down to one man. It goes from general to specific, to general, specific, general, specific, all throughout, because the Bible's one single big story, one single big story with one single thread Running through it. Okay. So, there's no time to discuss how the gospel writers, all of them, begin all their gospels. Matthew begins with four chapters of, this, this, this happened to fulfill the word of the prophet who said, and he has got, he's got four chapters of it. Uh, Mark starts with a big long thing about uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. right? Uh, just as written Isaiah the prophet, and it's all about John the Baptist coming and proclaiming, proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. So I want to focus in on just one text out of a million. In this narrative in Luke, this young couple from up north in Galilee, they come down to present their baby in the temple, just like you do. Right? This is this, this young couple from the sticks, basically. Right? I'm from West Virginia. They're kind of like from West Virginia in the first century in Israel. Right? So these are these are proto-West Virginians. Um, and they come down. They have this baby. Now, all kinds of strange things have happened to them. There's been angels visiting. There's been They've heard things. Shepherds have come. Kings have come. All kinds of strange things are happening. And it's hard, they're not processing. All. You can imagine it's overwhelming. And then they bring their baby in the temple. And this old man, who has been waiting and waiting and waiting, named Simeon. Because God had said, you're not going to die until you see that I've kept my word. And Simeon walks out. They walk in. Simeon walks out. He takes one look at that baby. And he takes that baby. A baby! Now, remember, imagine being the parents. Imagine being uh, Joseph and Mary. And this old man, he picks up your baby, he looks at it, and he says, Now I can depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for the glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled understatement at what was said about him. It's beginning. The fulfillment, the long-awaited fulfillment, is beginning. This is the point the Old Testament was straining towards. If you read the Old Testament, you never get a you never get a sense that you've stopped. You never get a sense of this is the end of the story. You never get a sense of this is this is complete in and of itself. You know why? Because it never is. It doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean that we should not read it. We have to read it. We need to read it because it's part of the big story. But if you read it, you never get a sense of ah, we've arrived. We never get a sense of that. Even with the greatest characters like David. The greatest king in Israel, you never I mean you never get a sense that he's the one. Because his son is the wisest king of all, but he starts doing what? I mean he's building he's building temples for his wives in Jerusalem. Right? It's not a sign that the golden age has come. And then the kings go downhill. So even the greatest figures, even the greatest figures don't ever give us a sense that whew, we can exhale. The story keeps moving and moving and moving. Why? Because there is this ancient promise hanging out there. One that the seed of the, the seed of the uh, seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, and another promise that the nations are going to be blessed through this one man in the desert, in Iraq. And so we're waiting. We're waiting. And Jesus is that fulfillment. Jesus is that fulfillment, as Paul says. Galatians 3, 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And then through him, through him those who have what? The faith of Abraham. Not those who just follow in the bloodline of Abraham. You're not, it's, not a, you're not, it's not a sure you're in just by being Abraham's bloodline. You have to have the faith of Abraham who believed God and was reckoned as righteous. Because the, the promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled in his true seed, that is that is Jesus. So, let's return to the, the Great Commission, which I've sort of renamed. I thought I figured I could do this since the Great Commission is not really a biblical phrase. It's just a heading in your Bible, so I didn't feel too bad about inserting a new word on it. I don't think this is adding to Scripture. Just adding to headings. It's the Great Fulfillment Commission now. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is looking at his disciples and saying this. Go, spread the word. The promise to Abraham has been fulfilled in me. Take your part in this story. As the people of God who believe in Jesus, it has happened. The time has been fulfilled. Go share the promise with everybody in its fullness. That's what the gospel of Jesus is. The gospel, the good news of the gospel of salvation in Jesus is all about the promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. And when we look at it this way, we look at the Bible this way, we start to say, hey, you know what, this is, this is a big story. And it's not just a story out there, this is my story. And missions is all about God including us. And calling us to take our role in the continuation of the fulfillment of that promise. That's how big it is. Whenever you share the gospel with somebody in, in whatever way, in, in your relationships and the way you're ministering to them, and you speak a word uh, about Christ to them, what you're doing is, you're jumping on board a promise that began in the desert centuries ago. You're part of it. You're part of it. Not just, uh, here's five texts why I need to do missions. That's good. You need to have those. But it's Here's the big story of the world, and God has graciously called me to be part of it. And I think that is the sustaining drive of missions. When we realize that in our neighborhoods, out in the nations, wherever we are, we're saying to people, God's kept his word. God's kept his promise. And there is a promise for you. There's a promise for you. No, we're not quite done, though. Soon after this, it begins. And Jesus says... They come and say, are you getting ready to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, nope, not yet. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. This is their sort of marching orders. And what happens soon after that is the curse of Babel is overturned. Peter stands up at Pentecost and he starts to, he starts to preach. And before he starts to preach, uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out on people. And people start hearing the gospel in their own language. And that's nothing other than the overturning of the curse of Babel, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As people are gathered again as one people, but this time the people of God with one spirit. Not separated anymore by language, well, of course, still separated by languages. As, as, uh, as John Piper has said many, many times, God calls all the nations so the worship of the one and true living God will be a polyphony of languages from every nation, tongue, and tribe. But at the same time, they're called back together as one people in a way that transcends every nation, tongue, and tribe because they all can have the same spirit speaking the same word about Jesus. So we're recreated into a new people. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And this is what's happening. This is what's happening when we do missions. I mean, when we live our lives as Christians, that's what's happening. All the nations of the earth being blessed. God's kept His word, His ancient word. And we're all having the same spirit, recounting the same story. And it takes off. It takes off. And here's just a brief outline of Acts. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the remotest parts of the earth. The whole first half, not the first half, first part of Acts is all about the first part of that promise. They're in Jerusalem until Stephen is stoned, and then that scatters the believers. And that that persecution in Jerusalem, of course, the, the leaders stay, that persecution in Jerusalem does what? It seems like, wow, this is really bad. This new movement is going to come to an end. Everybody's getting persecuted. But the persecution does what? Leads them out. And pretty soon, they're in Samaria. And then an Ethiopian eunuch. And then, and then the number one opponent of the church is converted to Jesus. The number one, the guy who is doing, is spending all of his effort to wipe the whole thing out, is confronted by the risen Jesus who says, why are you persecuting me? And what does he do? He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations. And then it keeps spreading out in a circle. I mean, if the Mediterranean Sea wasn't there, you'd sort of have this concentric concentric circles going out from Jerusalem, out and out and out, until you have a full-fledged Gentile church in Antioch. Gentiles, not Jews, Gentiles, who have the Spirit and are proclaiming the Word of Jesus. All right? and, and the Jewish believers are... I mean, as as I heard somebody say yesterday, in in Jerusalem they call a church meeting. They sort of convene convene a committee. And then they say, what are we going to do about these Gentiles? They're receiving the Spirit. So they have a meeting, and they decide, yes, we validate this, we confirm it. They have the Spirit, they're on board. And so they validate it. Because it's a really wild time. And then the second part of Acts, it's into all the world. Into Phrygia and Galatia and into Macedonia, and to Rome, and Galatians, I'm sorry, 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 Acts ends, with Paul in house arrest in Rome, preaching the kingdom of God. Now the beginning of Acts, is really the gospel of Luke, right, because Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. And at the beginning of of Luke, like we saw, Simeon says, this is a light to the nations. Luke ends the second volume of his work, with the apostle Paul, in Rome, which in many senses, is the end of the world, because if you make it to Rome, you can go anywhere, because it's true, All roads lead and lead out of Rome. If you're in Rome with the gospel, the gospel is unbounded. And it ends with a guy in house arrest. Strange, isn't it? And it doesn't seem like that hopeful of a movement. One of the big leaders is under arrest. The other guys have been dying too. And so you have this leader. He's He's in under house arrest, but what's he doing? Every day it says people are coming to him. He's preaching the kingdom of God. Every day. Proclaiming Jesus is king. I might be in prison, but Jesus is king. And what happens? Well, it takes off from there. So here it is. Here's the big story of the Bible again. You have one to a great nation. And from a great nation... Sorry, sorry, I promise. Then, sorry, this is not the great I'm ahead of myself. The nations and then Babel, right? And then you have the Babel down to one man. And then you have one man to a great nation. And then you have a great nation centered now on one man, and then from one man back out to the nations. So the Bible continually, continually from specific to general, specific to general, specific to general, specific to general, general, till you get to this point, and then it's all the nations centered on this one man, beginning to end. This is the whole picture of the Bible. And then it explodes from there. Now, here's a short history of it, and this is is providential. Yesterday, I'm at chapel over at Southern Seminary, and a guy called Matt Chandler, who's a pastor at Village uh, Village Church in Dallas, comes and preaches preaches in chapel yesterday. And lo and behold, he he gives this brief history of missions. And I thought, I'm just going to steal that, and I'll give him credit. But here's what happens. Here's how quick it happens. Acts, first chapters of Acts, 3,000 people come to faith. A couple of chapters later, 5,000 more added. AD 49, Paul is in Turkey, what we call Turkey. AD 51, Paul goes to Greece. 52, according to tradition, Thomas goes to India. Of course, that's not a biblical tradition, but this is a a widely held church tradition. And we know there's this early evidence of Christians being in India that's supported. 54, Paul's third missionary journey. Early 60s, Paul's in Rome preaching the kingdom. By 174 AD, there are Christians in what we now call Austria. By 280 A.D., there are Christians in non-urban parts of northern Italy. As Matt Chandler said yesterday, Christianity is no longer an urban religion. It's it's going out to everywhere. By 350 A.D., somewhere around 53% of the Roman Empire claims Christianity. Now, I know all about how that's sort of, we don't really know exactly with, with Constantine and the Roman Empire how much of that is true or not. But we know there were lots of believers by then. Whatever else you might think about Constantine and, the, and, and Rome and all the, the baptisms, whatever else you might think, there's no denying that there are num- numbers and numbers and numbers and numbers, hundreds and thousands of believers in the Roman Empire by 350. 350. Remember, remember this started with a man in the desert, started with a nation of slaves, started with, a, started with a baby born from these people from way up in Galilee, started with these fishermen preaching the gospel, went to a church persecutor who ended up in jail, this is the, that's that big story. So we're AD, AD 350. By 432, Patrick goes to Ireland. By 596, Gregory the Great sends Augustine to England. In two years or so, there are 10,000 Christians in England. By 635, there are missionaries going to China. By 740, missionaries from Ireland, uh, from Ireland arrive in Iceland. By 900, missionaries are arriving in Norway. By 1200, the Bible appears in at least 22 languages. By 1498, skipping way ahead, there are Christians in what we now call Kenya. And that brings us up to just about the point of the Reformation, which ultimately leads to the modern mission movement with uh, like the Moravians, or William Carey going to India, or Adonai Judson going to Burma, or Henry Martin going to India, and then to Persia, or Hudson Taylor, also a medical missionary, uh, one of the early pioneers, goes to China. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And if you want to, you can take that list, and it wouldn't be that difficult to do, and you could take the time, you could trace it all the way down to today, Louisville, Kentucky, whatever the date today is, is November 13th. And to whatever places all of you are from, because you could trace it all back to this church was planted, and this church was planted, and this church was planted, this church was planted. Uh, back to the Puritans coming over, people like David Brainerd going out to the nations, all, I mean out to the Indians, all kinds of things like that. And it all goes back to Peter preaching in Jerusalem on Pentecost. So today what we've done is, looked at the big picture of the Bible, and I I hope that I've made it clear. I hope I'm right. I think I'm right. And I hope it's been clear that missions really is at the heart of what the whole Bible is about. Not just a piece of it. Not just a piece of it, but part and parcel of the Bible is the mission of God to the nations. Through this man, Jesus Christ. It's the Bible story itself. And it's the story of the world, past, present, and future. And I think it's that story that will sustain us as we go out and share the story with the world. And finally, you come to the end of the Bible, which is a new beginning of the story. It's the end of the story and a new beginning. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Remember? Look up at the star. look up at the heavens. Count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Earlier in in chapter 13, which we skipped, God says, count the sand if you can. That's how many children you're going to have. This is all to Abraham. You get to the end of the Bible, a number number that no one could count, just like the stars. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God. Our God, we from all the nations... This is our God, and we are his people, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and finally. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with people, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the story of missions, and that's the story of the Bible. Well, thanks for coming today. We have, just a, we have just a few minutes. If anybody has a question, I'd be happy to answer it. I know I actually thought I would go way over time. Um, and I do have actually, I'm not going to tell you how many more notes I have here, but that's a good stopping place where I just stopped. Yes? Well, I mean, I mean, we know sort of historically what's happened. Um, uh, is, I mean, Ishmael is promised to be a great nation, but he doesn't receive the promise that Isaac does. He's, God promises to protect him, make him a great nation, but they're, they're sort of temporal and land and national promises. Um, and, and we know all about the conflict, the continual conflict between the sons. Um, but I think that the, the promise the, promi- the, the promises are different. One's a promise that stretches out beyond, and one's a promise to become a nation, a powerful nation that's going to be a thorn in the flesh for the brother. but, but now one of the nations to be reached with the promise. Not excluded. Not excluded on the basis of Israel. I mean, Ishmael was not excluded. Nobody was excluded. I mean, God singled Abraham out, but that didn't exclude the nations because it was going to be, and this would include Ishmael, it was going to be through that one man that all the nations would be captured. That's a weird word to use, but I think that's what will happen. Yeah? Let me put you on the spot for a second. Okay. Would you uh, give your opinion of whether the, fact, or the issue is healthcare, or mm-hmm. health care or health care? Our healing ministry yeah. is still a part, an integral part of the church and its mission, mm. or is it merely a tool for propagation of mission? Let me is it a oh, I'm platform sorry. or is it a is it part of our DNA as as the church? Let me give you the answer that my students love to hear. It's both. Right? <laughs> Anytime you're on the spot, say it's both. No, I'm not just doing that. It is. It it, it actually, I mean, I think practically speaking, it serves us both. It can serve us both. I think, and I left out, I left out that there's a, the the, the sort of overriding story is the story of the coming of the kingdom. Right? Where the earth is the Lord's and all that dwell in it. It all belongs to him. And it's all given to Christ. And it's all given to his people. So, in, as full members of the kingdom, one of our jobs in this world is to take all of our gifts and all of our abilities and pour them out into the world. As a witness to Jesus, right? Um, and so it can be a platform. Uh, I think as a as a mission, it does. I think that uh, all missions have to be connected to a proclamation, a message, right? But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that if you're if I think if you're a doctor and you and God is calling you to go to the nations, you go be a doctor there, and you don't sort of charge people like the the cost of getting an inoculation today is going to be listening to me talk for an hour first. Right, or, or the cost of getting something to eat. Uh, before you get this, uh, before I do this sur- surgery, before I put you under, you're going to listen to this story, and when I wake you up, you have to repeat it back. Right? Uh, nothing like that. Nothing like that. So I think I think that any anything we do as Christians is part and parcel of our mission, because I think missions really is more than just this person's called to the nations. This person's called to the nations. Missions is what we are doing, beginning to end. I think we've had sort of a stunted view of it. Whereas the Bible, I think, presents us all as being missionaries, and all that we do poured out into it. But I, I do think, I do think, though, I do think though, that we, we don't want to get too general. Uh, you know, that somebody—if somebody say goes to be a, 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 I don't know, a car mechanic in South Asia. I mean, it's a weird. I know, it's the first. I don't know why that came to my mind. Uh, if he's going to be a car mechanic in South Asia, is he a missionary there? Well, okay. If somehow he's doing that, and that. Ministry of being a car mechanic is connected to the gospel going out to the nations. But I I, I guess I've always wondered why that can't be a part of everything we do, because we're called never to be anonymous Christians anywhere we are. There's really no role of these sort of anonymous Christians, so nobody really knows I'm a Christian. Now, there's dangerous places in the world where you have to keep it under wraps. I understand that. I have friends in places I can't even name publicly. Uh, But I I think that if we kind of get on board with this idea that none of us are kind of under-the-cover Christians. We're all meant to be witnesses to Jesus. If we're all witnesses to Jesus, because we're all part of this promise, then let's take all of our gifts and abilities and take them everywhere for the sake of Jesus. And let's let Christ, by His Spirit, pour out of us in all that we do. So when people say, why are you doing this? Well, I'll tell you why I'm doing it. I'll tell you why I'm doing it. I'm doing it for the sake of Jesus. I'm giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. So I guess my answer would be that there's really... Maybe there's not really two questions as much as we've it's sort of come down to that. You have a whole group of people who say no missions other than it's just speaking. There's this, you know, there's a, I know a lot of these people, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not there. Because I think, I mean, lots of things we do lead to opportunities to speak. And it might take years. I mean, I'm all about it taking years to establish relationships. And go there a million times until people start to get to know you and trust you. Anything like that, I'm, I'm completely on board. I just don't think you have to show up with sort of a syringe and say, "Okay, line up now." Before I, before you get this inoculation, you're going to save your life, right? You're getting ready to die, or I know it's an exaggeration. I'm the other kind of doctor, so I don't really know what I'm talking about. Um, you're getting ready to die, so I'm going. To, but before you get this life-saving inoculation, I'm going to make you pay for it. Well, people listen to anything to keep from dying, but you know when they're open is when we're there, healing and touching them being with them, putting our arms around them, living with them. Then the door's wide open. So my answer is, yes, it's part of it. That was a really long answer. I saw one more hand. We're kind of over time. I'm happy to take one more question, though. Okay, thanks. You guys have been great. I really appreciate you coming out. Oh, thank you. And uh, I hope you enjoy your time.